Hey everybody, Zach here. Hope you are having a fantastic week. I'm really excited to share this week's episode with you, but before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick thank you to our friends over at Mongoose for making today's conversation possible. So as enrollment marketers, we spend a lot of time, money, energy, and effort trying to get new prospects to our website, right? We launched digital ad campaigns. We spent a lot of money on paid search. We spent a lot of time and effort creating content to help boost our organic rankings. And sometimes we forget, right, that getting people to the website is only half the challenge, right? Once they're on your site, you've got to deliver a really frictionless, really delightful uh, user experience so that you're getting users to the information that they want as quickly as possible. And chatbots can help with this, right? Chatbots aren't brand new. We've been talking about chatbots for a while. You're seeing them pop up more and more on university websites. But there's a real difference between a basic chatbot and a true enterprise virtual assistant. A true enterprise virtual assistant is technology that helps visitors complete tasks that normally only a human would be able to assist with. So more complicated queries, more complicated questions. So what your website might actually need, right? If you're worried about your user experience, if it's not you know uh, up to snuff, what your website might really need is Harmony, which is brought to you by Mongoose. You can learn more about how you can use Google Analytics to evaluate whether or not your site can get by with a basic chatbot or whether it might need something like Mongoose's Harmony. So you can learn more about this by accessing a new free free guide uh, at mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. That's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. And this guide will help you determine what sort of chatbot you need and how to better your user, your site user experience as a whole. So thanks guys. Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz and I am your host for today's episode. And today I have the great honor of welcoming Rand Fishkin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Spark Toro to the show. Welcome to the show, Rand. Thanks for having me, Zach. Rand, um, there's so much we could talk about today. I'm really, really excited for our conversation and really honored that you uh, took time out of your busy life to spend about 40-ish minutes with us. Um, could you just start... I'm curious, actually. So I normally just ask folks to give them a, to give a brief introduction of themselves, but I want to do something a little bit different with you, and I think, uh, I think you'll rise to the occasion. So if you had to give an overview of what your career to date has looked like to a stranger at a bar or at a coffee shop, <laughs> if, if you prefer, who was, this person was genuinely interested in your professional experience, but they knew nothing about search, about marketing, about branding. They knew nothing about content strategy. How would you go about explaining what your career has looked like? And uh, I want to give you bonus points if you can do so without too much uh, industry jargon. Okay, sure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, let's see. So I, I have to do this quite frequently when I explain what I do or have done to uh, family members, especially in-laws. So I think I'll... I'll use that as my rehearsal practice there you go. <laughs> for this question. Uh, I So I dropped out of college and started working with my mom, Jillian, who was running a small business marketing 
consultancy. At the time, she was doing things like helping you know, local banks and therapists and doctor's offices, a lot of dentists actually with uh, business cards and their letterhead and their logos and their yellow page ads. But it was, uh, it was the end of the nineties, start of the two thousands. And so the internet and the World Wide web was uh, becoming popular. And so her clients started asking her, could they build websites, right? In addition to all this print media and offline stuff, they wanted websites. Sure. And that was what I loved to do was build websites. So I started working with my mom, um, making websites back in the early 2000s. And we went very deeply into debt because we were terrible at building this business. (laughs) Uh, At one point, we had we had promised to our customers several of our customers, that we would help them rank well in search engines, right? We would, we would get them ranking in search engines like Google and at the time MSN search, which became Bing and Ask Jeeves for anyone who might remember that uh, and Yahoo, those kinds of places. And we, we had subcontractors, right? People we paid to help with this process uh, and they... Um, they were good at their job, but they also were expensive. And we could not afford to pay our subcontractors, even though we promised our clients who would do the work. Nice. So, nice. So <laughs> that is how I learned SEO and web marketing. I had to, because I had to do it myself. SEO stands for search engine optimization. It's the practice of, you know, getting your websites, pages, um, ranking highly in Google and, and other search engines so that when someone you know, queries for, uh, you know, dentist near me or dentist Seattle, you know, their, their dental website would come up highly in the results in the non-paid results, right? You can buy ads on Google, but, but that, that costs you for every click. The organic, the non-paid results are, are free. And um, that is the world that I spent uh, the next 15 years in. Wow. So initially we, we were, um, web design. And then we went into this SEO consulting business. And a few years in, we built some software to help automate some of the tasks that we had, right? Make them easier for us so that we could do our work faster uh, and better. And we made that available on our own website, which had become a popular resource for SEO because I, I wrote about SEO five nights a week, um, publishing blog posts, etc. And that... Um, that software within a few months was doing as much revenue as our consulting business. Wow. And we went, holy crap, we're onto something. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we doubled down on the software and I became CEO. Uh, and over the next seven years, the company, which, which is called Moz, uh, went from, you know, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue to 30 million in revenue, uh, a year. It's now somewhere around the, I don't know, 40s, 50s. Um, I stayed with that business for a long time. I, I only left in 2018. Uh, I stepped down as CEO in uh, in 2014, and yeah, had some had some considerable challenges, sort of being at my own company that I was no longer in control of. Sure, uh, but uh, wrote a book that uh, was published by Penguin Random House called Lost and Founder about the experience of kind of building a a startup that from the outside looks and feels like a success, but from the inside, you know, is plagued by lots of challenges and turmoils and sort of not, 
not being exactly what its investors um, or the asset class. We, we raised venture capital, uh, which I which I would not do again. Hmm. Um, yeah, we uh, we didn't meet those expectations, and so I, I wrote this book about it. Left in 2018 um, and started a new company called Spark Toro, which is in still in the marketing space, still in web marketing, but uh, Spark Toro helps with market research and audience intelligence, which is basically just a fancy way of saying uh, helping people better understand their customers' behaviors and attributes and what they pay attention to so that they can go do marketing in all the right places to reach them. Sure, sure. Uh, thank you for that that history and, and your story. Uh, I'm just curious, how long did your did your mom stay on at Moz? Did she did she come yeah, over she one? Left, she left in 20... 12, I think. Okay. So she was there for a for good a while. while. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, that must have been really interesting. Uh, I don't know too many mother-son duos who, who work together, <laughs> let alone grow startups no. together. I, I think I think mother-son is the uh, least likely venture-funded founder combination out there. I bet. I bet. Wow. Yeah. What a cool story. What a cool story. Well, maybe we'll have to get her on the podcast at some point. Um, <laughs> do you, have you guys ever done a yeah. show together or done a presentation together? I don't think we have. No. Okay. Okay. That'd be really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it'd be fascinating to hear her, hear her perspective on, on how, you know, your story, uh, came to be sort of the challenges that, that she experienced on her end. That'd be a really, really interesting story to hear. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I think, I suspect that, um, you know, her, her struggles and challenges are, um, very different to my own, but yeah, equally, equally poignant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that backstory. Today, I really want to have a conversation with you about market research and audience intelligence for student recruitment. So to give you a little bit of context, all right, our listeners um, to this show are enrollment marketers. So folks who are working in admissions and education, marketing and communications, most mm-hmm. of our, our listeners are working uh, in higher education. Uh, and about 60% of them are people that work in enrollment management. So they're, you know, responsible for admissions. And then about the other 40% are working in marketing and communications at a university doing, you know, everything from brand work to social work to, you know, event marketing work, etc. So one of the, you know, obvious challenges here that many of our listeners are, are living through is that their marketing and their recruitment budgets have been slashed uh, significantly in light of, you know, the challenges of the pandemic that we're living through. Um, and, you know, for the first time in in a long time, the industry, right, which is historically antiquated in its, in its thinking, is really rethinking their approach to marketing and student recruitment. And so while yeah. I know you're not an enrollment marketer, uh, you did launch SparkToro, if I remember correctly, during the pandemic, or I believe it was right at the offset of it, um, the outset of it. And you've, you know, had to build this brand in a mostly, if not entirely virtual context. So I'm just curious if you could give us some insight, uh, you know, shed some light on how you have approached building and marketing um, uh, a strategy from the ground up in this, these very, very strange times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we, knew that we were always going to be digital in our approach. Uh, and Casey and I, my co-founder and I, are um, have worked from home. So 
the pandemic honestly did not change a ton of what we were doing other than it took away our ability to get together in person and it took away one of our big channels for promotion and marketing which was events hmm. uh you know as you and i mentioned before the the podcast we were talking about you know all the events that um that i i speak at and and um often give a lot of keynotes about marketing previously about you know seo in my in my old job and now a lot about uh, marketing strategy and research and those kinds of things and yeah there's a there's a real um, struggle because of that missing element i think one of the things that we did very wisely that i would encourage enrollment marketers to do as well is that we before we launched we built up a list uh, an email list of people who were interested in the the problem we were solving and our potential solution to it um, and that email list is really what helped us get off the ground despite, yeah, unfortunately, terrible economic conditions. And, and of course, as you know, um, and as you reflected, right, in the enrollment space, marketing is one of the first budgets to get cut sure. when there's a recession um, and a downturn. And that, you know, that's frustrating, but it makes sense because demand is down. And so why, why would you do promotion at the same level? Um, I think, you know, the... The key for us has been to concentrate on a few tactics and channels that work well and scale for us that we can repeatedly invest in and get better at and grow our sort of ability to uh, reach and engage with those audiences and our ability to convert them from, you know, a, a person who's interested in what we're doing to a person who might be a potential customer. Um, and finding those channels has been a little more challenging uh, because of the pandemic, but it is, um, it's going okay for us, right? I would say we're sort of uh, maybe 80, 90% of our, our goal, which is, yeah, pretty decent. Sure, but, uh, sure. Certainly from a growth perspective, I think if it, if it had not been for COVID, we, we likely would have been blowing that out of the water. So, yeah, yeah. I'm curious with the these channels, right, that you guys have been experimenting with. I love the idea of of helping encourage or encouraging folks rather to focus on the channels that are actually producing meaningful ROI. I think like one of the biggest challenges that folks in the in this space face is sort of this uh, this you know some people subscribe to this the idea of like omni channel being something that is like necessary for everyone in every context and like if you're not everywhere right you're missing out um, and what inevitably happens especially if you have you know small budgets limited teams is you spread yourself so thin that you're really really wide but there's not a lot of depth to what you're putting out um and i you know i'm curious if you if, if there's been a channel or a couple of channels that have produced more fruit uh more meaningful fruit than maybe you all had initially uh suspected or if you know the the way the channels through which you're promoting spark toro have more or less performed as expected considering, you know, everything going on with, uh, you know, becoming a, a totally virtual world. Um, hmm. Let's see. So specifically on the question of have the channels we invested in performed as expected? Uh, no, I would say that they're all, they're all down uh, a little bit. The, the channel that's worked a little better for us than we expected, maybe the only one is uh, LinkedIn. 
which I think has seen a surprising rise in activity among business-to-business professionals. But I don't know how applicable that is for um, for the Enrollify audience and, and enrollment marketers uh, potentially. Right? I think if you're in if you're in the world of grad students and um, you know higher level degrees. Uh, and you're reaching professionals who are already in the industry, uh, that B2B audience on LinkedIn can be valuable. Uh, What I would say more broadly, though, is that I 100% agree with you. I don't like the omni-channel approach. I don't think it lets you concentrate and focus enough attention and energy. And you need that attention and energy to be able to invest in a channel and get better and better at it, rather than worrying about being everywhere. I I don't think most firms have the bandwidth and resources to be able to invest in every possible channel. And I don't think it's necessarily right to be worried about, hey, what's our TikTok strategy? Sure. Um, sure. You know, like that, I, I don't think that makes sense for most enrollment marketers. Maybe there's a few who have some you know, particularly extraordinary skill there and interest, and they've managed to build up a niche audience there. Okay, I, I would say that's a. It's a little bit of a rough place for brand building. Um, regardless, like I think it's a fine place to potentially sell whatever brandable merchandise, but I, I or build a career as an artist. But I don't necessarily know that it's a great place to get folks interested in your um, higher education offering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I always encourage folks, I actually published a blog post about this last night when, when folks ask me, and I get this question all the time, right, where should I start doing marketing? Because, I, you know, I think a lot of people have heard the omni-channel approach and have, have felt like they're missing out. Um, and my advice is to pick the intersection of three places. Hmm. One, an area where you can provide unique value value that is differentiated from everything else, all all the competitive sources that could be publications, it could be people, it could be other colleges, it could be, you know, um, other websites. Uh, I would really encourage folks to consider, strongly consider um, finding a place where they can provide unique value. Second is going after uh, an audience, an an area where your audience is actually paying attention. So, mm. you know, we talked about TikTok or, or Reddit or YouTube or LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Google ads or content and SEO or a blog or a podcast or webinars or offline branding and media. There's a tremendous number of options, right? Huge sure, number sure. of options. You could, you could have an entire strategy centered around sponsoring podcasts. You could have an entire strategy centered around placement in YouTube videos. You could have an entire strategy centered around uh, content and SEO. And none of those are bad or wrong, but you should make sure it's reaching your audience. And that audience might be very different if you're going after uh, pre-med students who are primarily you know, highly geographically distributed versus you're going after uh, folks seeking a two-year degree from a local region. Exactly, right? exactly. And uh, my, um, my last piece of advice, once you nail those two, is third, you as a marketer should prioritize, and this one's going to be odd and it might be hard to sell internally, but I would urge you to do it. 
you should go after an area where you have personal passion and interest. Hmm. If you hate a tactic or you are no fan of a chant, right? If you're like, ugh, TikTok, look, I hate it. Guess what? Even if your audience is there and they're relevant, even if it's the case that uh, you could provide unique value there, don't do it. Yeah. I have never seen a marketer do an amazing job on a channel or a tactic where they personally didn't uh, enjoy and resonate with with the the process. It just doesn't happen, right? I think you you need someone who cares about those channels. This is this is why, uh, particularly in social media marketing or in content marketing and SEO or in um, uh, production, you know, of video and audio content, you need people who have that passion and interest. Yeah. So you get those three together, right? Area of passion and interest, area where you actually reach your audience, area where you can add unique value. Start with just one or two tactics and channels. And I, I promise that will be a far better path than I'm going to try and be everywhere and do everything. Couldn't agree more. Uh, so much gold there. And I think that, you know, to just further the point slightly, uh, by the time that you're paying attention to a space, if you're developing like a social platform specific strategy, right, you you really do need to understand the nuances of the platform, the nuances of the network, right. And I think that so often, especially with the rise of uh, marketing automation tools, especially with the rise of social media uh, management and publishing tools, it's just too easy to go and you know have the same blog post be sent out across four Twitter profiles and two LinkedIn profiles and seven Facebook profiles all within you know a, a week's period of time. And I think that the, the marketers that I see that are killing it, especially when it comes to to social, are the folks that don't just understand how the platform works, but understand how to craft messaging and craft content offers that are uh, exciting and um, compelling to the audience on that network. So, and it's yeah. the, the reality is like, if you wanna do that well, it's just gonna take time. Like there's no, there's no just like hack, right? Like if you want to be original, if you want to be different, if you want to be unique on these platforms, if you wanna deliver authentic value, you've gotta put in the time. And you know, we all only have 24 hours in a day. So thanks for sharing that. I think that that's a, that's a really important point for our listeners to, to walk away with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you bring up a great point, right? It is, it's really tough to differentiate yourself um, in the world of higher education today. And I think there is rising skepticism, massive skepticism uh, among, you know, young folks in particular, but I think across the American economy about the, the value of um college degrees yep. and whether it can make an economic difference in their life yep. and, and make a substantial, you know, change to their uh, livelihood. And, and I think those are really fair concerns and, and you're going to have to do, I think you have to do more than marketing, right? I think the product has to be remarkable in addition to the marketing and, and that's how you're going to stand out. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, a hundred percent agree with you there. And, you know, one of the things we like to say a lot is like, look, 
when we're working with with clients or we're talking with people in the industry is higher ed your your programs right especially at you know the graduate level you're you're not competing really against other grad programs you're really competing against silicon valley like you're you're competing against right the people in the space that are doing really really cool and different things um that is your competition right so like you uh, to 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 kind of circle back on what you were just saying it's like I think this moment in particular is um, is the perfect moment to reevaluate the product and to be really honest with yourselves as especially if you're in a position of power within a within a university of what what how do we need to revamp these programs how do we need to shift sort of um, uh, these products so that they resonate with the the audience that we're that we're targeting and or do we need to look for a different audience like if we if we have limited capacity to change the actual product and the current audience isn't interested in the product, how do we go and find a different audience? So, there, I mean, there's just a ton of, of wrestling that's happening in the industry right now. And quite frankly, it's just hard and people are scared and schools are closing down. Um, you know, and this yeah. is this is a real, real reality. It's a it's a it's a rattling. It's it's true disruption. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it is. I think that this is the moment to you know put a hopeful spin on this where enrollment marketers, especially if you, again, are in a position of power, uh, have an opportunity to enact real change in how products are created, how programs are created, how they're marketed, uh, and the audiences um, uh, that they're marketed to. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that's absolutely accurate, right? It, it's, it's times of great upheaval and change that force us to reevaluate our offerings and force us to shift direction. And I can't remember a, a bigger upheaval in my lifetime than this one, yeah. certainly on the economic front. Yeah. So uh, this is a great segue into another question that I've been dying to ask you. Um, so one of the major disruptions happening right now from like a tactic standpoint is colleges and universities are used to purchasing college board names of uh, high school juniors, high school seniors, sometimes sophomores. Um, and then at the graduate level, right, the, the, it's pretty common to purchase GRE and GMAT names um, and enroll these these folks into some sort of student search campaign. So some sort of kind of like top of the funnel, uh, uh, you know, uh, lead nurturing campaign. Um, but yeah. in year over year, these names are, are getting a lot more expensive and the ROI of these tactics is getting smaller and smaller and there's lots of skepticism over in the same way that you know the the rest of the world kind of wrestled with purchase list 10 plus years ago hired is really coming to terms with the reality that this might not be the best way in which to uh, generate <laughs> qualified inquiries for our programs um, yeah. so uh, marketing and admissions directors are are just increasingly aware now of how behind they are when it comes to taking SEO seriously. And just in recent weeks, you know, the amount of questions that we've received around like, hey, I need an SEO strategy for student recruitment or, hey, uh, what's the difference between paid and organic? And I mean, there's just a the industry wow. at large just doesn't understand a lot of this, or, or especially folks who are in positions of power at the director or VP level, they just, they haven't really paid much attention to it. And now they need like this like dramatic shift in order to, um, in order to, you know, recruit the fall class of 2021. So my question, this is a very long lead up to my question, which is that if you had $50,000 Rand to spend on increasing your organic search rankings over the next 12 months, how would you spend that cash uh, to have the greatest chance of moving of moving the needle. Obviously, this is going to vary so much depending on context. But like, 
without knowing the intricacies of, of a school's context, how would you advise an institution to, to spend this cash in order to build some semblance of like a starter program when it comes to uh, SEO? Yeah. So I, uh, as you said, right, I think this is different for every different organization. Um, I don't think that uh, I don't think that I would advise two colleges or universities to do the same thing, right? So if I give an answer for one, it's probably wrong for another. Uh, and, and so I think the direction to take this answer in is strategic rather than tactical. And what I mean by that is rather than saying, well, I would take those $50,000 and I would you know, hire a video production person and I would put together some great distance learning videos that are free, that help people in a specific niche, uh, that are likely to attract and um, earn amplification from audiences that reach our target audience, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'd have a press coverage right, process. R rather than going the tactics angle, I would put the $50,000 aside and I would get... Um, I, I would probably put the first few weeks and months of my effort into doing a few things. I would try and first understand who is it that is likely to be our audience uh, and their sources of influence for the next five years. Hmm. How is that changing from who it's been over the last 50 years? And uh, and the answer to that question will will help tell me more about the tactics and strategies I, sh I should pursue and the channels that I should pursue, right? If, if the answer is, oh, our audience is about to be older, they're going to be more experienced, they're going to have worked in these types of jobs, they might have these types of passions and interests, they're aspirationally seeking these types of changes in their career, or if the answer is, no, it's still going to be high school students, but they're going to be high school students who have these characteristics, sure. right? And who uh, have these interests and passions. And I, I, I would urge anyone who possibly can, if it is at all available to you in your space, to specialize as deeply as you can. Hmm. One, one of the things that I think can make you truly stand out is to stop being broad, to stop saying, oh, well, we offer a high quality, you know, liberal arts education program how does that differentiate you, yeah. right? What, you, you and everyone what, else, yeah. Yeah, you and everyone else, right? You, you have to stand out from the field and you have to do that in ways that are uh, compelling, that have a clear, obvious narrative. When you tell the story of why your, um, why your college or university is, uh, is different from everyone else's, when you tell the story of why someone should come to you over everyone else out there, I, I don't think you can have the answer of, oh, well, we offer a high quality educational program in the regional Southeast of the United States. And, um, you know, we have a, whatever, a nice, a lovely campus and um, high quality teachers. And you just told me nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, this is right. The, the, the pitch is, is not this anymore. Um, I, I don't think it can be if you want to stand out. W ways that I've seen some um, universities and education uh, opportunities truly stand out from the field is to say, um, we have deep and ongoing relationships with uh, the game industry. 
we, our students are recruited at very high rates into these, you know, the, uh, by these, you know, 10, um, uh, uh, video game, you know, employers sure, and, sure. uh, you know, 10% of our graduates go on to found their own independent studios. Okay. That is a really interesting starting point, yeah. right? You have, you have just told me that you have a specialization and a focus and something that is intriguing and something that's of interest. And I know that the video game industry is a growth industry. It's already bigger than, you know, the, the film and television industry um, by, by a wide margin, right? And it continues to have tremendous opportunity. It's something that um, has a lot of passion around it. It's something where you can do a lot of creative and unique marketing. Okay, right? Like yeah. you, you've got me sold on something. Or on the on the other side of things, right? It could be, hey, we are uh, we are in the top five uh, programs in the nation for macro and microeconomics. And uh, although our name is not as well known as these other institutions, we are also a third of the price. And yet our graduates still go on to work side by side with, you know, colleagues from Harvard and Yale. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Now you have a compelling differentiation there, right? You're telling me that your return on investment by going here and studying economics is five, like these are the kinds of positioning exercises, right? The types of storytelling exercises that I think universities are going to have to do, right? And, and ed higher education of all kinds is going to have to do. You have to show me uh, which specializations, which passions and interests. You've got to tell me the stories of individuals because for some people, in those individual stories resonate. And for other people, it's not the stories, it's the statistics. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so give me, play to both sides of that. Once you get that right, You've got your audience, you have your positioning, you know your story and your narrative. Now you can go after the audience that, that you need to go after with those $50,000 with through the channels and tactics that are going to go reach them. And it's going to be extraordinarily different if you're going after high school graduates who are interested in joining the video game industry out of college than if you're going after uh, folks studying economics who want to be you know, um, up there with the, you know, with the giants of, of their industry and influencing the next generation of, of how wealth distribution is thought about and right, the two completely different audiences. You're going to reach them through two different uh, places, right? One of them is probably going to be like, if I were doing the video game strategy, I would be doing a lot of video. I'd be doing a lot of visual content marketing. I'd be doing a lot of social media marketing. Uh, I'd probably be using a lot of my, um, uh, which we call it uh, connections to uh, video game makers, right? To have them uh, ad help advertise and amplify our programs through their channels, yeah. and, and they probably would do it. And if I'm on the other side, if I'm in the economics world, right? I'm probably doing a lot of press and PR strategy. I'm probably doing a lot of talking about social and economic issues uh, and po and politics. Uh, I am probably looking for guest contributions to publications and journals that. Um, that highlight, you know, uh, our programs and our graduates. I probably will will use our graduates to have them talk about and amplify what they've done. So, really different, right? And not necessarily um, the same the same uh, channels either, yeah. right? One is like a social media channel. The other one is probably more of a search 
uh, search marketing and content marketing channel. So just you know, way, way different. I, I love that. And I think it's incredibly important. And if I could just step back and, and sort of uh, kind of summarize what at least I hear you saying is before you can speak tactically, you have to understand strategically who your people are, who first and foremost you are, what is your yeah. product, right? What is the yeah. unique value offering of your product? And is there anything on your site currently? Is there any content that exists digitally that really fleshes out that unique value offering? And if if the answer is no, which in many cases yeah. uh, it is, right? That's where you start. So so often yes. people want the tactic. They want they want the results. They want to move the needle immediately, and they don't want to do or or don't feel empowered to do or or whatever. Um, the, the real work, which is in, in first and foremost, fleshing out like the, the who, like the what, right? <laughs> like the why. Um, and yet that's just, that's so important. It, it reminds me, we did this, uh, little secret shopper experiment, uh, a couple months ago and, um, actually right at the start of COVID. So a little bit longer. Um, and what we did is we went and inquired at 80 different business schools for, uh, all for MBA programs, some, you know, breed some version of an MBA, whether it was an online MBA or, uh, you know, a hybrid MBA. And we just inquired. So we just requested more information said, Hey, we want you to send us information about your program. And what was so funny is of course, like these people, they enroll you in like their drip sequence. And, um, it was as if like, I kid you not ran, it was as if like 80% of the communications that we received afterwards, it was as if everyone used the same, like constant contact, like template from like five, <laughs> seven years ago. Right. Like the whole, the, the two lines of intro text and then the four bullet point like uh, this is why we you know are the best thing since sliced bread um and then and then that was it right like and it was like if you it was incredibly hard to tell from a communication standpoint any meaningful difference between these brands and you know and we in in this particular experiment we like took out you know the the ivs and and the cal schools like we took out kind of top rated programs and really focused on sort of you know by U.S. News and World Report, you know, the 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 uh, top 80, but not the top 100. Um, and anyways, it was just my, my point. This is a very long-winded way of just saying that it really does start by understanding your brand, understanding your product. And if you don't have that written out digitally, like if there isn't real substance there, it's going to be really, really hard to implement any sort of uh, SEO strategy that's going to yield meaningful ROI. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the way that I, um, talk about this a lot with entrepreneurs and people who, who start companies is that they need to have a succinct, easy to tell resonant story that compels people in their audience to want to follow them, listen to them, cheer for them, um, check them out, see if their products are right for them. And I think you need the same thing in higher education. Yeah. Right. You've got to, you've got to have that story nailed down the narrative that you can tell in a few sentences, the paragraph, uh, to someone right on campus, right? What, what is that? What is that story? Uh, and then you're transferring that into the digital world and you're telling that story over and over again. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. I want to shift from SEO and talk a little bit more about uh, market research and, and persona development um, and talk a little bit more about SparkToro. So last week, 
I had a call, I had actually two different calls from enrollment marketers who were asking my thoughts on some recent proposals that they had received from vendors for market research and and persona development. And both of them had slightly different concerns, but uh, the gist of their concerns was that they were nervous about dropping, in this case, upwards of $200,000 to basically do a whole uh, market research and, and per- persona development sort of campaign to essentially tell them what Jeez. they sort of suspected all along, right? They didn't know definitively that like this, you know, these uh, 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 personas were, in fact, the, the right personas for their programs, but they, they had strong suspicions that they were. Anyways, uh, what I'm curious and I would love your thoughts on are, is when you think about sort of the whole market research and, and persona development, audience development space, uh, how do you see this space being, being disrupted? And what influence, if, you know, if any, do you think traditional methods of research, like you know, traditional focus groups and, and surveys, should have um, over sort of where time, energy, and, and effort is allocated? So I guess like in, an, in a way to ask this a little bit more simply is how do you see sort of the market research and audience development space being disrupted? And do you see SparkToro being uh, a potential, you know, cause of this disruption, uh, a potential solution to this disruption? How do you see your product helping folks who are in who have these needs? Yeah, uh, so let's see, I. I think that it is a little bit, um, a little bit crazy that, you know, folks are going out and spending $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 on market research and persona development. And and the reason I think that's a little wild is um, because we have at scale tools to mine digital data that people are voluntarily, huge groups, right, are voluntarily putting online. And mining that digital data does not require, you know, um, developing complicated surveys and finding the right 2,000 people to send those surveys to and then, you know, doing a bunch of modeling exercises based on that. Look, I, I think if you're a Fortune 500 consumer products group, if you are, whatever, one of the, you know, a university with, you know, multi-billion dollar endowments. Okay, you can afford it, right? Yeah. Maybe it's a fine um, investment for you. Maybe getting a little narrower on your audience or having a little bit better understanding of their whatever values or interests or psychographic data is is slightly helpful um, to tailoring your messaging. But I think for the vast majority, not even vast, the overwhelming majority, right? We're talking 99% of companies and people and organizations, including higher education, uh, that is complete overkill. And that data um, is available through one of three ways that I would urge you to instead consider, right? And those those three ways are rather than um, that those types of market research, I personally don't love personas. Hmm. Um, I don't love them as a marketing uh, model system. I and, and that's not to say I don't like the idea of them. I think I think that it's okay to have this sort of hey, we are going after, like we talked about earlier, we are going after high school students uh, from this region of the country who are interested in whatever these three passions and um, majors and that kind of thing, right? Like that, that's okay. That's, sure. That's fine. And you can think of that as a persona. What I would what I'd much rather you have you do than like whatever you know, video gaming Victor 
as your, <laughs> you know, as your per- persona, they're always alliterative names, yeah, whatever yeah, 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 personas, yeah. right? And um, rather than doing that, is instead to say, hey, here are 40, 30, 10, even five individual human beings, real people that we could have real conversations with who are really interested in our college, who have applied or who have come for tours or who have uh, submitted their information online and who who fit the model of who we think there are many more people like. Now we're going to go out uh, across the web and we're going to try and get web scale data about that group. And that could be through... It almost certainly is through social media data. Um, it can also be through uh, running surveys, right? You can, I don't know if um, your audience is familiar, but uh, both Google and SurveyMonkey offer sort of broad scale audience uh, products yeah. that you can, you know, uh, run large numbers of people who match certain criteria through and get results back. And we're talking about spending hundreds or thousands of dollars, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, I do think that tools like SparkToro, we th- we're not 100% sure. We think that there are a couple of other players in our space. Um, one of them is called Helix, Helixa.ai, um, H-E-L-I-X-A.ai. Um, and, and basically what, what SparkToro does is uh, crawls the web, uh, including social media websites, uh, aggregates profiles together, and then provides aggregated data about those profiles. So it can tell you sort of the behavior and attributes of a, of a shared group. So if you want to know what, I don't know, dental assistants in Canada uh, read, watch, listen to, pay attention to, we can tell you that. If you want to know what electrical engineering uh, professionals in the UK are um, what podcast they're subscribed to. We can tell you that if you want to know what interior designers in Los Angeles are reading and visiting, right? We can, we can tell you that you, it's just based on a search. And so, you know, a bunch of, um, folks in higher education have used us, for example, to say like, Oh, I want to find people who are talking about business schools online. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, they, uh, what well, I was helping someone with a search like this the other day and, we found that using the uh, my audience frequently uses the hashtag uh, hashtag B school. Hmm. I didn't know B school was like a big thing, but apparently it is. And you know that audience follows certain sources. They listen to certain podcasts. They watch certain YouTube channels. They uh, subscribe to certain websites. Right? They're they're following certain social uh, media sources across various networks. And so those are great places to potentially reach those people. You can see the words and phrases they use. You can go target those audiences. If you want to do more research about them, you can reach them through those channels. I think that's a really good way to sort of end around the multi-hundred thousand dollar market research um, investment problem. Yeah, no, and and that is um, some great advice there. Just to... Can you give us some sort of uh, ballpark? I don't. We don't usually do this on on the podcast, but uh, because we're talking about money here, so two hundred thousand yeah. dollars for this market research. What is something like a? What does a tool like SparkToro talk uh, cost? Oh, excuse yeah. me, uh, comparatively. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the first you can run ten searches a month for free. 
There you um, go. So okay. a lot of the a lot of the data is free. <laughs> yep, and and you can just sign up if you have an email address. Uh, and then if if the data is sort of valuable to you when you want to see deeper into the results and all that kind of stuff, I, the uh, paid plans start at um, 150 a month and go go upward from there. But the you know the the delta between that and two hundred thousand dollars for a market research, even even ten thousand dollars, right, is just is just huge. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, you know, if you're running one of those like SurveyMonkey audience, I've seen people spend between two and five thousand dollars on those, okay, um, and get really good results. So again, you know, we're talking a tenth of the cost. Um, for some very, very good data. Survey design can be challenging. Uh, interpreting results can be a little challenging. You, want to, you do want to try and normalize them against you know, the broader U.S. population, but you, you can hack a lot of that together, right? Census data, I, I realize the current administration is trying to sabotage the existing <laughs> census, but you, you can um, you know, model that against census data and get some, some pretty decent uh, results, right? Certainly good enough to use for 99% of marketing campaigns. Well, thank you. I have one final question for you and then I will let you go. Um, it, I guess it's two questions, but uh, I want, I'm just curious when you think about the state of marketing today, what does is, what is Rand get most excited about? And then a closely related question, um, or if you'd prefer to just answer this question, and that's also fine. You know, what do you spend most of your time kind of reading about and, and thinking about with respect to marketing or, and branding uh, today? Yeah, so second question first. I spend a lot of time um, honestly reading about the um, macroeconomic and larger socio-political uh, environment because I feel like that helps me get a great understanding of like where uh, where industries are headed and I, I do this industry by industry right so I'll um, I don't know read about uh, what's going on in um, wildlife and forestry or read about what's going on in um, you know um, medicine and healthcare or read about what's going on in technology right uh, I all or or journalism. Um, I also spend a great deal of time trying to think about broader systems and incentives. I think that, look, as individual people, we, we, our decisions are, are based on our own experiences and, and what we do. But, uh, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted for me how, how much um, cultural, societal, and um, sort of information consumption habits dictate mm. how we behave. Right. Like, you know, you and I were talking about conferences and events and how like, oh, I got an invitation to an event in Denmark and to speak at this thing in Germany and to speak at this thing in Italy. And I can't go to any of them because I'm an American and our country is uniquely terrible at handling the virus because mostly of our like politics and, you know, um, belief in individualism over collectivism. And and I think those sorts of understandings are really, really helpful, right? To understand yeah. how systems govern, how people behave broadly, and how we can change that. Because that is a marketing problem, right? Huh. Getting people to wear masks in the United States is a marketing problem. Hmm. And so I think a lot about, you know, systems and narratives and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, to your first question, which was around like, where do I see marketing going? What, what do I think the big changes are? I think 
I am very scared for, but also very hopeful um, about trying to influence this world where a couple of big, powerful technology monopolies uh, own and govern almost all the data and almost all the channels. Yeah. So I am I am not a fan of throwing all your marketing money at the Google and Facebook duopoly, even though that's what 95% of businesses do. Um, I think that the true opportunity and competitive advantage exists when you break out of that uh, duopoly and when you find sources of influence that reach your audience directly and go spend time and energy and sometimes dollars um, supporting them. I think that not only gives you uh, better access, it's often higher return on investment, it's lower cost, and it has uh, a better impact on the distribution of wealth and opportunity, right? Because you're basically funding businesses that are not just Google and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, uh, those are some deep thoughts, Rand. I think that those are, those are important ones. And I'm glad to know that there are, uh, people who I really respect in the industry that are thinking about these things and, and working through them. So thank you, uh, again for, coming on the show today. Really, really appreciate it. I know I know you're a busy and uh, much in-demand individual. So thanks for sharing about 15 minutes of your life with us. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you and or just learn more about SparkToro, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, yeah, so sparktoro.com is, uh, is the website. And if, you, uh, if you're interested in following what I'm doing, I'm most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Rand, for your time. Really, really appreciate it and have a fantastic rest of your week. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. Take care. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there. Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Just a final thank you to our friends over at Mongoose for making today's conversation possible and a reminder to you all to go and check out their new guide, their new resources, their new resource, excuse me, that will help you evaluate what sort of chatbot solution your university website needs. Head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Thanks, everyone.